Hi there, my name is Alistair Madden and you're listening to Season 2, Episode 13 of the Road to Nowhere European Football Podcast. Do check out the show notes for a comprehensive running order of all the topics we covered in this episode. This really was an action-packed episode. In Italy, we looked at the good, the bad and the ugly of Andrea Pirlo's tactical tinkering at Juventus. In Spain, we looked back on a pulsating derby madrileño between Real Madrid and Atletico Madrid and the repercussions of the one-all draw in that game for the title race in La Liga. In Germany, we looked at Bayern Munich's inevitability and their tendency this season to fall behind and then recover to come back and win following their 4-2 win over Borussia Dortmund last weekend. And then in France, we looked at the managerial movements at Rennes in the north-west and Marseille in the south-east. Plenty to talk about there, so hopefully you enjoy the episode. Hopefully you find it enlightening and engaging. This episode is, of course, produced in partnership with Freelance Football Ops. If any of our listeners are freelancing in football, you may be interested in signing up to Freelance Football Ops' subscription-based newsletter. They find jobs which cover writing, design, video, audio, and generally anything in football media every week. For more info, follow at FFOps on Twitter or visit freelancefootballops.com. Just before I let the episode take centre stage, I would point out that I somehow contrived to not turn on my microphone, my separate microphone, when recording the episode. So if you are wondering why the sound quality on my part isn't up to the usual standards, therein lies your answer. Hopefully you still enjoy the episode, hopefully you're all staying safe, hopefully you're all staying well. Enjoy. I'm just going to start us off by saying that Rudy Barlow quite clearly didn't trust his flatmate James Williamson uh, to, to give him the buzz cut because his hair's even longer now than it was two weeks ago. That's Funnily enough, how hair works, it grows. I did have a haircut earlier tonight from my mum. She tidied up my hair. And uh, the boys have both complimented me before we've come on to record tonight. So I'll take that as a good sign. Just before we do get into the, the four leagues, what I would say is that we won't be covering in too much detail the Champions League fixtures over the last few days because in our next episode, you'll be joined by tactical expert Lee Scott for an in-depth look at all the round of 16 games and a look ahead to the quarterfinals. The draw for the quarterfinals will, of course, have been done by then. Lee Scott joined us for a bonus episode in between seasons one and two. If you haven't already checked that one out, do go and have a listen to that and look forward to our Champions League special with Lee Scott. That's going to be released a fortnight from now. But meantime, uh, Rudy Barlow and Michael Jones are with me as always. Michael Jones, how are you doing? Yeah, good evening. I'm still pretty ecstatic, to be honest, from that game midweek, that game that we shall save for our next podcast between Juventus and Porto. It was simply incredible. I keep saying, I think it was probably the best game of football I've seen since COVID hit us. Feeling blessed right now, thanks to football. Wonderful, beautiful game. And I tuned over for, for extra time. I've been watching the Dortmund Sevilla game, and I was very glad that I did tune over for extra time. Rudy Barlow as well caught that Juventus-Porto game, which we'll, of course, discuss in more detail in the next episode. He was similarly amazed and in love with a quite brilliant game of football. Rudy Barlow, how are you doing? Yeah, I'm as well as I'll ever be. Um, I'm having a pretty good week. Looking forward to the weekend. And you mentioned that haircut. I think any any guy who's had a bad haircut knows the uh, trust issues that come with letting someone else out your hair, particularly a non-professional like Senor Williamson, as we were discussing. 
Ah, oh, yeah, James Williamson, good lad, but not such a good barber. He's probably feeling attacked because that's two weeks in a row that I've called into question his barbering skills. Um, but anyway, people aren't here to hear about that. People are here to hear about some of the best football across the continent over the last two weeks. And I think it makes sense for us to start in La Liga. So much has been going on. One of the most important games of the season so far as well to discuss. The obvious place to start in La Liga is Madrid where the Derby Madrienio took place last Sunday with potentially huge repercussions. After their blip against Levante twice and Chelsea, the pressure really was on Atleti, with some questioning whether the wheels were coming off for Simeone. They secured the first win away at Villarreal in five years after that Chelsea match to ease those worries. Still, although they had a game in hand, Real Madrid had the opportunity to cut the gap at the top to just two points if they were to win at the Wanda last weekend. A gap, of course, which only a couple of months ago stood at double figures. The match ended in a 1-1 draw, Suarez striking early for Atletico before Benzema grabbed a late equaliser. With that game now behind us, are we any closer to making conclusions on this riveting title race, Barlow? Yes and no. I think, in a way, it was a match that confirmed the sensations to in a Spanishism about both of these teams, confirmed our ideas about them, but equally the result itself didn't give us a decisive point where we could say Atleti are clear, clear favourites now, or more clear than they were, or Real Madrid are out of the title race, or right back in it. I think it was a really good game to watch, and as good a 1-1 as you'll ever see. Simeone, I definitely say, won the game plan early on. First sort of hour, Atleti were dominant. They were pressing at points. They were dropping at others. And they had a really impressive fluidity in their play that you don't often see Atleti play with. The ability to sort of move up the pitch and be sort of back in their own half and solid soaking up pressure. It's, it's not a trait of theirs that we're used to seeing, but it's something that we've seen more this season. And to do it against Real Madrid is certainly important. I think Trippier, who's come back he's just come back from his uh, betting band so to speak and he was absolutely crucial he gives Atleti a freedom and in particular frees up Marcos Llorente to go forward that's really been holding them back this calendar year and we've seen their blips have come without Marcos Llorente uh, without Kieran Trippier sorry and Yannick Carrasco on the flanks and that's where the goal came from Trippier to Llorente to Suarez and that narrative of Suarez being the sharpshooter of Atleti really looks like it was going to, the sharpshooter that they were lacking, it really looks like it was going to be confirmed in this game and he beat Courtois with aplomb. But if we're going to talk about narratives, there's a moment in that second half where Angel Correa misses a pretty clear chance when you'd mm-hmm. expect him to put away. And he might have been offside, we didn't see sort of a bar line drawing, but... It was, it was as if you'd seen a ghost. It was as if you were in that horror film and the protagonist has just seen a ghost in the window and it's like so fleeting that you they can't really raise their concerns to the rest of the world because nobody would believe them sort of thing. <laughs> but everyone in, who's watching this film is well aware that this is where the trouble begins. And Atleti did miss chances in that second half to put Real Madrid away. And Real Madrid are like that monster in a horror film. You can see them coming from a long way off and they just never, ever seem to die. You need to kill them dead, burn their ashes, burn them to ashes and then scatter their ashes around the world to stop them from coming back because that's inevitably what happened. And I think the Smash Football podcast referenced them in, or compared them to the Terminator last week. And it's, it's a similar sort of idea. And just to just to sort of elaborate on how the game changed, they brought on Vinicius and Valverde and definitely became more dynamic. They managed to control the midfield far better than they had done previously. And without creating much, it sort of moved them up the pitch into the final third to the point where one moment of magic could solve the game. And that's exactly what happened. It was the old guard. It was Casemiro and Benzema who combined brilliantly for the equaliser. And you could count on your hand the number of good performances that Real Madrid have had this season. But the old guard does just find a way in the most crucial of moments. And Fadano, I think, had a phrase as well. Benzema, who was not 
particularly fit for this game, but he said Benzema 70% is better than any other solution that Real Madrid have, as proved to be the case. And on their part, it keeps them in the title race. It's not the worst result, particularly given the first hour of play. I think the problem for Madrid, and I referenced this last podcast, I believe, where we're talking about that need for transition. And it's a big missed opportunity for Real Madrid, but Real Madrid's problem, uh, for Atleti, sorry, but Real Madrid's problem is that they're stuck in this pattern of the old guard bailing them out every time they get to a big game, but they're not building towards anything. They're not getting better. They're just staying the same and just about getting by. And without sort of that progression, if you're not moving forwards, you're always moving backwards. Totally agree with your points about Kieran Trippier and Yannick Carrasco in particular. I did manage to catch the Derby Madrienio at the weekend and that was one of the main thoughts crossing my mind over the game and I think the two of them probably will make the second leg against Thomas Tuchel's Chelsea a bit more interesting than it might have been had those two still been unavailable. Elsewhere, Paul, I was quite curious to hear from you about Sevilla's recent form from seemingly the most reliable team outside of Atleti this season. Their recent form and a thrilling Copa del Rey semi-final loss to Barcelona have swung the mood at Estadio Ramon sanchez Pijuan from cautious optimism to genuine pessimism. That semi-final loss came just three days after the Catalans beat Sevilla in their own backyard in the Liga and two weeks after a home defeat to an Erling Haaland-inspired Dortmund in the Champions League. So my question was, are we seeing merely a temporary dip or something of a more worrying trend that Ewan Lopetegui needs to address? For me, it seems like more of a dip than a trend. You've got to take into account that this Sevilla side has been playing pretty much non-stop since about June last year. They won the Europa League, obviously, which took them well into August and then had essentially no pre-season. Then played Bayern in that brilliant Super Cup match. They played, I think, extra time. That was an extra time they they lost that. And then they were straight back into La Liga season for three days between each game. And so they, they did have a dip again in November. And I think there's people sort of naturally put that down to sort of fatigue and exhaustion. But I, th- I think we're seeing more of that. I think there are wider issues that are preventing Sevilla from taking that step to be a, a title challenger beyond March. And I don't want to, I don't want to sound like a broken record, but I'm going to say it again. They need a striker. They need a goal scorer. Without that, they won't get further. And so there, there are key nuances that are holding Lopetegui back in a sense and holding Sevilla back. I think Banega, his absence has obviously been missed greatly, particularly with Rakitic failing to sort of succeed him in a similar role and I think Papu Gomez will help that once he settles and once he finds a sort of natural position in the Sevilla side which he doesn't have yet but yeah I think that sort of fatigue Jesus Navas, Acuna they're sort of the two fullbacks which Sevilla rely on pretty heavily to attack and they've played an awful lot of games they've been missing for quite a bit of this calendar year and you look at the sort of personnel that Lopetegui has to, to bring off the bench to go more attacking. It's Luke de Jong, who's come up with some big goals. It did so in the Europa League, but he's not a game-changing substitute. Oliver Torres is a bit more technical as a player, but has never really put a claim down to being a Champions League quality midfielder. And I think when Sevilla... When Sevilla are really good and they're playing and they're on the front foot attacking, it's more like a well-oiled machine clicking into place and it's it's punctual, it's precise, there's players arriving all at the right time rather than a sort of more chaotic stampede as Erling Haaland might be himself. And that, I think, really influences them because if they're not on their game, if they're not perfect, that punctuality slides, people don't arrive at the right time in the right space. And it's difficult to break teams down because they don't have that sort of genius invention that Benega had that Papu has not yet given. And there's there's an element of Real Madrid about Sevilla as well, I think, in this in the way that we tend to analyze them, because when they're winning, it tends to be in, a, in praise of their sort of efficiency, their ability to 
get results without playing particularly well or necessarily dominating a match. And then when they lose, we tend to look at it and think, well, they're bereft of ideas and they don't have the players for this. And so it's a very resultist way of looking at things, but I, I think it's more of a dip than a trend, so to speak. And those issues are pretty obvious. They need to be addressed in the summer, and I think they will be by Monchi. Be interesting to see how the season goes on. But after all that, we've still not touched on by far the biggest storyline in Spanish football. That severe defeat was part of Barcelona's manic journey to the King's Cup final. Off the pitch, though, the king is dead. Long live the king, right, Barlow? Yes, Juan Laporta is back as Barcelona president. The former Barcelona president, he was in charge from 2003 to 2010 and obviously set into motion this Barcelona that we know, Frank Rijkaard and then Pep Guardiola, both winning Champions Leagues as part of that Barcelona. And yeah, he he beat out Tony Freixa and Victor Font uh, in the election. And his reign is certainly a breath of fresh air for Barcelona. There's there's a few doubts about Laporta. He's not perfect. And certainly he left under a cloud in 2010. I personally have questions about how he's going to manage this finance because it's a historically large debt that Barcelona have. Um, he also doesn't have the sage advice of Johan Cruyff to rely on, who he was very close with before Cruyff's unfortunate passing. But his greatest virtue is that he is not Sandro Rossi or Giuseppe Maria Bartomeu, who incidentally spent um, a night in prison rather than being dead. The king was just in prison on corruption charges, I might add. But as Laporte has pointed out, he did leave Barcelona at the best spell in their history with Pep Guardiola in charge, with UNICEF on their shirts and with Messi about to become the best player in the world and potentially ever. If you compare that to now in the way that he's come in, Camp Now is literally falling down. There are pieces of Camp Now coming off. There are scandals of corruption, sort of worthy of the worst politicians that we've seen. There's stories that really read like fiction as opposed to a sort of football club being run, a not-for-profit football club, I might add. And yeah, Barcelona right now, or at least six months ago, I'd say were a decadent shell of themselves on the pitch in European competition. It'd become hard to find words for the way that they declined. I don't, I don't think we've ever seen a team be destroyed quite like they were against Bayern in the Champions League. Certainly not a team of the size of Barcelona. And if you contrast that to the image that we have now, of Laporta, who himself is a master politician. He's full of charisma, he's full of energy. He even quoted John F. Kennedy in his acceptance speech, asking not what Barcelona can do for you, but what you can do for Barcelona. And that sort of bravado is, it's part of what Barcelona have needed. It's that confidence and it's maybe a little bit slimy. It's a little bit over the top at times, but Barcelona need a bit of optimism and a bit of confidence bordering on arrogance at points. And then if you, sort of put that together with the image on the pitch that Barcelona have been given in recent weeks. They've played 3-5-2 quite often under Koeman and they've looked better than they have done in, I'd like to say, two or three years. They've been playing at a tempo that's much higher than they've been playing at for a long, long time. The players that they're playing in that formation look at home, they look comfortable and they're using their abilities to, or they're maximising their abilities, whereas before Barcelona have so often looked like a perfect I think ever since Coutinho and Griezmann came in they've never really found a natural looking formation that doesn't look lopsided we saw against Sevilla in the Copa del Rey Piquet's heroics alongside a bunch of exciting youngsters in Pedri, Buch, Araujo, Ansu and now Elish Moriba who looks excellent and I think what you have to say about this Barcelona is they, they just look like they're moving forward again for the first time maybe since that 4-0 against Liverpool Barcelona going in the right direction again. And that that's huge. It's massive. Plenty for the listeners to mull over there. We'll take a quick break and we'll turn our attention to the Bundesliga. We'll be right back. We spoke in our last episode about the Bundesliga's natural order, following Deo Upamecano's transfer from RB Leipzig to Bayern Munich. 
Continuing that theme, there was something almost inevitable about Bayern's comeback against Borussia Dortmund at the Allianz Arena last Saturday night. Despite Erling Haaland's early brilliance, Hansi Flick's side would recover and eventually register an important 4-2 victory. Tellingly, the Bavarians have now won 11 of their last 14 games against Dortmund in all competitions. That run makes for quite grim reading for Dortmund fans, doesn't it? Yeah, it does, Michael, but Dortmund aren't the only team to have taken the lead against Bayern this season and have succumbed ultimately to defeat. I was just looking at this on transfer marked after the game on Saturday night. Bayern have fallen behind 13 times in the league this season and in those 13 games in which they have fallen behind, they've won six and drawn four and they've only lost three. That is utterly remarkable. It's remarkable on the one hand because Bayern have fallen behind 13 times uh, in the league, which is, is crazy, but it's also remarkable because they've they picked up 22 points from losing positions. That is that that is remarkable. It shows the resilience and it does show, as you say, Michael, an inevitability. When Erling Haaland scored those two early goals, I didn't get too excited because I did want to see Dortmund uh, pick up a result at the Allianz to, to keep the title race interesting. It's interesting even with Bayern Munich's win, but I went for Dortmund with perhaps have added a little bit more spice into that kind of two-horse race at the top between RB Leipzig and Bayern Munich. But it always just felt like Bayern would come back, even when the clock was ticking down and we were approaching the 87th, 88th minute and Leon Goretzka did score. It just felt so depressingly inevitable. And so I think that's more a reflection of Bayern's resilience, Bayern's ability to come back from behind than Dortmund's mental state, Dortmund's ability to hold on and, and, and win games. I, I don't think... It's more a reflection of that. It's, it's more a reflection of the way that Bayern have just been so impressive at coming from behind this season, uh, at giving teams head starts almost and, and then coming back. Dortmund as well had quite a few key players out. Rafa Guerrero was missing. Jaden Sancho was missing. Gio Reyna was missing as well. I think Rafa Guerrero was was missed probably the most. Nico Schultz was, was deputising and I just don't think he's quite at the level required and he was at fault for, for at least one of the goals the, the first goal um, just gave Sani too much room in the box and he picked out Lewandowski so I think Dortmund will probably take heart from the fact that they, they ran Bayern so close the fact that they did take an early two goal lead and the fact that they were so close to to leaving the Allianz Arena with an important point the run itself doesn't make for too good reading as you say Michael that's 11 losses in the last 14 games against Bayern Munich in all competitions. Marco Rose, when he comes in next season, will obviously hope to kind of arrest that that slump, if you like, against Bayern Munich. He has, as we said last week, a much better record against Bayern with Gladbach. Just another point as well, when we spoke about the fact that they did have a number of players out missing, a number of important players to the way that Dortmund play out missing. They, they made all five substitutes by the 76th minute. Erling Haaland limped off or was taken off, I think, as a precaution. Uh, and at about the hour mark, he was absolutely brilliant. The minute you take him off and replace him with the likes of Stefan Tega, as they did, there will be a noticeable drop-off in your potential in the final third to cause Bayern problems. And it did very much feel like this was a huge game sandwiched in between two huge games, i.e. the, the cup game against Gladbach which they won, and then the Champions League second leg against Sevilla, which was successful and that they've progressed to the next round. So all in all, this probably would have been seen as a game that Dortmund, well, they would have liked to have won it, realistically weren't going to win it or stood little chance of winning it. And it was a case of squad management, if you like, by, by Edin Terzic and realising that the Champions League tie against Sevilla probably was overall more important than that Bayern Munich game, which sounds quite strange to say, but progressing to the, the quarterfinals of the Champions League probably was more important than this one very difficult game against Bayern Munich. They still do have work to do in the league, Dortmund, to guarantee European qualification for next season. That's not a given. And I think you would be quite naive to suggest that they will definitely go on and secure European qualification. I think they probably will, but it's not guaranteed. But all in all, Fairly encouraging on Saturday, if a little bit disheartening that they weren't able to hold on to the two-goal lead. But all in all, you know, that's what Bayern do. It's inevitable. Just a word as well for Lewandowski. That's 20 goals in 14 Bundesliga games against Dortmund. It's incredible. Uh, nine goals shy now 
of Gerd Buller's record of 40 goals in one season. Um, Lewandowski scored 31. Ellen Haaland as well. You know, it was this kind of shoot-off between Haaland and Lewandowski, two players perhaps at opposite ends of their career. You could say Haaland scored 32 goals in 34 Bundesliga appearances for Dortmund. That is frightening. And I know that we always see how good Haaland is and we always trot out his goal-scoring statistics, but it doesn't make them any less phenomenal. What, what a talent he is. Also, I mentioned for Leroy Sané, he's come in for criticism for his lack of contributions defensively. Karl-Heinz Rummenigge really tore into him after the Frankfurt game, and probably understandably so. Sané probably was responsible for at least one of the goals conceded against Frankfurt in terms of not tracking back enough and aggressively enough defensively. But I thought he was excellent, put in much more effort, and I think Hansi Flick will be really pleased with his performance. Not like Karl-Heinz to be uh, openly critical of someone. Um, elsewhere, chaos continues to reign supreme at Schalke, the world's favourite footballing disaster. Following a dismal 5-1 loss away at Pellegrino, Matarazzo's newly promoted Stuttgart side at the end of February, the club's supervisory board announced the departures with immediate effect of the coach, Christian Gross, the sporting director, Jochen Schneider, who, to be fair, was already scheduled to leave at the end of the campaign. Also the general manager, Sasha Reiter, the fitness coach, Werner Leutard, and assistant coach, Reiner Fidmeyer, with one eye firmly on the club's likely relegation to the second tier of German football at the end of this season. Former Darmstadt coach, Dimitrios Gramosis, has now been appointed on a deal through to summer 2022. Remarkably, Gramotis will be Schalke's fifth different coach this season, a Bundesliga record. It's a sorry state of affairs in Gelsenkirchen, isn't it? Yeah, Barlow, it really is. I've spoken before about how I haven't enjoyed in the slightest Schalke's demise. Great fans, very loyal fans, fans from an area that, that has not had its problems to seek in recent history, big mining town. And a lot of those mines obviously shut, a lot of unemployment then occurred. So I do have quite a soft spot for Schalke and it doesn't really do anything for me to see them suffering the way that they have. It's been a total mess on and off the field. There was a moment in the game against Stuttgart that you mentioned, 5-1 loss, that really I think um, epitomised Schalke's season. They were 3-1 down, they had a penalty with a chance to get it back to 3-2 and I'm not saying at this moment would have turned around their season, far from it. But it does just epitomise everything that's gone wrong at Schalke. They were awarded a penalty, 3-1 down, chance to get back into it, make it 3-2. Amina Reit and Nabil Bentaleb, two often outspoken figures, shall we say, were arguing over who would take the penalty. Bentaleb took the penalty and missed it. Stuttgart go on and win 5-1. That bickering, that immaturity, I think just sums up Schalke generally this season. They obviously had the incident earlier in the season involving I mean Arit and Nabil Bentaleb when they were kind of banished to train with, with the reserves or told to take some time out to sit on the naughty step so to speak and we saw it again with that triumvirate of players Kolasinac, Kuntzelar and Mustafi going to the powers that be at Schalke and complaining about Christian Gross whether those complaints were founded or not I, I, I'm not going to say but allegedly Christian Gross was speaking in, in, in the wrong language and calling players by the wrong name and was confusing zonal marking with man marking. Yeah, it, it was it was a mess. But I think anybody with a basic understanding of Chris and Gross as a coach probably would have said that it wasn't going to end in any other way than an absolute disaster. I think Craig King, who does Swiss football on Twitter, very good resource there, excellent coverage of Swiss football. He said that he, he really... Wouldn't be surprised to see Christian Gross last less than 10 games. I think he lasted nine games, perhaps. It was a mess. And ultimately this season, yeah, as you say, five different coaches. Gramos is the fifth different coach. Nine points from 23 games. The fact that they've had almost as many coaches as points speaks for itself. The club is also £200 million pounds in debt, over £200 million pounds in debt. Part of me thinks, well, maybe relegation to the second tier would be good in terms of a reset, but financially... I think it was Andy Brassel was saying this on, on the Continent podcast. Financially, it would be a disaster for Schalke. You could see them go down the route of Kaiserslautern or 1860 Munich, or you could see them go down the route of Hamburg. I mean, people are saying about them doing a Hamburg. That probably is best-case scenario, and that they'll at least be staying afloat in the second tier, at least challenging, albeit haphazardly, for promotion. 
uh, and not in the most convincing fashion, but at least they're at the right end of the table. That almost feels like a best-case scenario for Schalke. They're so heavy laden with debt. There, there are also concerns about the validity of their sponsor if they were to be relegated. So again, if, if that goes, that's more revenue they're missing out on in addition to the TV revenue. I just think it really is a sorry state of affairs. There's been a steady decline as well over the last decade or so, and I know that they've had good moments over the, that last decade. Tedesco came in and, and was very successful, finishing second. But overall, I think when I look at what Schalke fans are saying on Twitter, there's almost an acceptance that this is just the natural product of years of poor recruitment, poor coaches, Tedesco aside. Arguably, post-Ralph Rangnick, they, they haven't had someone capable of managing a team as big as Schalke in a manner befitting of the size of the club. There's also chat as well about restructuring in terms of maybe putting the, the sporting unit into the separate legal entity akin to what we've seen at Stuttgart, for example. We've seen it at a lot of clubs in Germany and that's another point of contention between the supervisory board and the fans, the fans are very much against that. They would see that as kind of relinquishing control over the club. They hold the club so dearly to them. And I think after the closure of a lot of the mines in the area, it's quite often seen as one of the only things that fans have left. And I can totally understand that because my own club, Kilmarnock, there are parallels in that Kilmarnock nowhere near as successful as Schalke. But in the Johnny Walker factory shut in Kilmarnock, there was a lot of unemployment. And when a town or a city or an area loses a source of, of mass employment in the area. But when that goes, the football club is, is a beacon of hope and, and I can see why the Schalke fans would perhaps be unwilling to relinquish the control and see the club split into the club itself in which the members will have an interest in then this kind of separate legal entity. I can, I can see why. This summer as well, we're going to have half the supervisory board up for re-election. So there's so much uncertainty at the club. There's just so much going wrong and it feels like it's all coming to a head now. I hope that Schalke don't suffer the same fate as Kaiserslautern or 1860 Munich and, and kind of slide into to the German football wilderness and, and really encounter significant financial issues. But part of me isn't entirely convinced that that won't happen. I think the huge fan base, and I'm not saying that 1860 Munich and Kaiserslautern don't have good fan bases, they do, but Schalke's connection is arguably unique even within Germany with the local community, the wider community, and so perhaps we could see them not bounce up straight away, but at least do as Hamburg have done and, and, and challenge, not convincingly, but challenge for promotion back to the top flight, which is ultimately where they belong. Well, such a sorry state of affairs, really. And I'm sure Tottenham fans would have told you 20, more than 20 years ago that Gross wouldn't have been the right man for Schalke in 20 years' time. But they do have historically such a prestigious academy and you wonder whether it will be the academy in the next years or two if they do start to plummet down the leagues that might be what saves them really I think it's almost that beacon of hope that, that you might think would bail them out but the issue was over the last decade or so they just haven't had enough funds and so funds were filtered away from the youth academy at Schalke into first team recruitment and even then that wasn't enough to compete and it's just been a steady decline poor recruitment poor choices of coaches, and really, as you say, we've said it over and over again, it's a sorry state of affairs. I would love to see them come right back up, and, and that's assuming that they do go down. They will go down, I'm fairly certain of that. But I, I don't think it's going to be an instant bounce back. I think there does need to be a kind of root and branch review of what's gone wrong, why it's gone wrong, and how they can learn from it. Whether or not that happens this summer when there is so much change in terms of the supervisory board, there's so much uncertainty financially with the sponsorship issues I don't know I don't know well we are going to wrap up our Bundesliga chat there we'll take a quick break and come back to discuss Syria we'll be right back on Monday night Inter Milan continued on their title charge with a 1-0 victory over Atalanta Michael in the last episode you claimed that the Derizuri would perhaps now run away with the Scudetto provided Antonio Conte did not tinker with his team. Well, he did, but he just about got away with it on Monday night. As for the losers, Atalanta, the defeat meant they missed their chance to leapfrog Roma and climb back into Serie A's top four. For a team whose trajectory we have been so used to describing as upward in recent times, should Ladea be fearing a serious setback 
in not qualifying for next season's Champions League. Yeah, it's a really interesting one. And it comes off the back of that huge win for Inter Milan, who are now six points clear at the top of Serie A, thanks to a strike from Milan Skriniar early in the second half. Before the game, Conte, yeah, he decided to tinker with his recent winning formula by putting in Arturo Vidal for Christian Eriksen. And in that first half, Atalanta really put Inter Milan under the cosh. And it was thanks to an inform Samir Handanovic, who kept out Duvan Zapata in maybe his best save from keeping the scores level at halftime. However, in the 53rd minute, Conte decides to restore that natural order and put on Christian Eriksen for Arturo Vidal. And it's from a set piece directly from that substitution taken by Eriksen, which leads to the Skriniar goal. Inter Milan, as they've done so well for the last two months that they were released, expertly saw out the game after that. And once again, you were really starting to see the best of Antonio Conte instead. But yeah, sort of coming back to the second part of your question regarding Atalanta's top four hopes, I think it's probably too early to say at the moment. They had four league wins in a row prior to Inter Milan and there's no harm, I don't think, losing to what seems to be a unstoppable force in Inter Milan at the moment. And I also think if you ask many Serie A fans who they place in the top four come the end of the season I'd still think they'd have Atalanta in that fourth spot I think the inconsistencies of Roma Napoli and Lazio were far more poignant and speaking of that consistency it's key for analyzing Atalanta at this stage because not having that has marred them over earlier periods in the season during November they only had one league game uh, which they won and in January they went for a period of just one league winning five it's important to try and understand these dips and in that first one back in November last year, you could largely attribute that to the Papi Gomez dispute with Gasparini that caused real dissension in the Atalanta squad. Of course, he was a crucial part of the way they play. Looking to the more recent one in January, you know, looking at the way Atalanta play, they really suffered tactically because one of the most important parts of their system is their rampaging wingbacks. And we're used to seeing Hatabora on one side, and Gerson's on the left-hand side. With the benefit of hindsight, Hatabua has now picked up an injury, and Atalanta, that's when they struggled, when they didn't have those two playing. But before January, they'd agreed to bring in a young Danish wing-back from Racing Genk, Mailer, who's been maybe not quite a revelation, but it's been an excellent signing, that really smart business as well, only about 12 million euros, I think he's... Another young Danish player coming through, which bodes well for them at the Euros. I think that will be an exciting team, but he's a really dynamic wing-back and he's made excellent progress. And following that run, they've now got Gerson's on the left and Mailer on the right, whilst Hataboa, who looks like he's going to be out for the best part of the season, they've now really got adequate cover, which isn't always something you've been able to say about Atalanta in key positions. With Pasina as well, who's shown, I think, in Gomez's absence. But what it does go to show is that they... They are a bit more threadbare in terms of the personnel in their squad. And especially given the crazily busy season, we're enduring an injury to any of them or another key cog in the Atalanta machine. It could seriously unravel their top four hopes. I think saying that for now, there's probably more reasons to be looking upwards. They've got a nice run of fixtures coming up over the next month. Nobody too noteworthy in the league which allows them to focus on that return leg at Real Madrid, which I think if they can keep 11 players on the pitch, should be a really, really thrilling encounter. Yes, Samir Handanovic, one of Europe's most underrated for my money as well, I might just mention. Um, another result which may have huge bearings on the race for a place in the top four come the end of the season was Juventus's 3-1 win over Lazio at the weekend. Both teams have been guilty of throwing away points for fun this season, yet what separates the two teams is the old lady's better bounce-back ability to coin a term. Simone Anzaghi and Andrea Pirlo, as coaches, they seem to be polar opposite ends of the spectrum of tactical fluidity. Do you think it is Pirlo's versatility, and Pirlo's been criticised, it's his versatility as a manager that is separating both sides right now, Michael? Yeah, like you said, he's been criticised, but and it feels strange to be complimenting Pirlo tactically at a time when large factions of Juventus want him gone after their knockout to Porto on Tuesday night. But going back to that Saturday evening, the game against Lazio, which feels like many moons ago, thanks to the short-term memory of many of us, 
the game against Lazio, it was actually a really impressive win and they come off the back of a disappointing draw against Hellas Verona two games back. And from them, Pirlo decided to really mix things up. He did so against Spezia in the game before and against Lazio to great success, a 3-0 win against Spezia and a 3-1 win against Lazio. And it's really interesting to see some of the changes he made. I think Pirlo, in terms of analysing a manager this season, has been one of the most fascinating to do so. He, he made this decision, which wouldn't seem intuitive to most pundits, probably let alone managers, you would think involved in the game. And he decides to move Alexandro, known to be another rampaging wingback. It seems to be a bit of a theme this episode. He decides to move him into centre-back as the left centre-back. But this actually works really well. It allows Bernadeschi to play on the left-back. Pirlo does make things work out in a way that others wouldn't think, just as he did as a player. And there's real signs to that in his management, that creativity. And I think he's made some really interesting tactical changes. That Alexandro one for one. And then another one is Federico Chiesa, who against Verona, he got an assist in the game. But Pirlo had played him at right wing back, partly due to Quadrado and Danilo not being available. But he has floated him around different positions in the last few games. And against Spezia, he decided to play him as a right midfielder, where he played most often for Fiorentina. And then in the last two games against Lazio and Porto, he's decided to play him as a left midfielder where he played to really devastating effect. He got an assist, man of the match, and won a penalty for Juventus against Lazio. And we'll talk about the Porto game more on the next episode, but he got the brace that everybody saw in that game as well. He's a real standout in what was not the best Juve side. But when we praise Pirlo's rotating and rotation, we also have to criticise it as well, because Whilst the tinkering and the innovative lineups have had a degree of success, he certainly seems to be guilty of doing it too much, especially when things are going well. And like we said, they had these back-to-back wins, but we can't really ignore the game against Porto where he's decided to put Sandro back at left-back where he really struggled for the game. And also in these three games, he's been constantly rotating the front two of Ronaldo, Marat and Kulisowski. And it doesn't help any of them that he's not that familiarity in such key parts of the pitch. His decision to restore Benucci for such a key game as well, I think really unsettled Juve. And as for Simone Nzaghi, who's at the other end of this tactical spectrum, he doesn't really like to move from his 3-5-2 the, the the fact that a manager will play his team the same way against Cagliari as he does against Inter Milan, Bayern Munich and Juventus when they're not man-for-man man better than those latter three teams, I think is something strikingly concerning. But we should remember that they're both quite young in their managerial career. They've both done a lot of things right. And I think if you blended them together, you'd probably have a world-class manager right now. I suspect over time they will improve. I feel like we cannot move on from our look at Serie A without focusing briefly on the bottom of the table where it has been a torrid fortnight for Torino. A COVID-19 outbreak within the squad meant that their games against Sassuolo and Lazio were postponed and upon their return last Sunday, their depleted side suffered a hugely damaging defeat away at bottom of the table, Crotone, with an increasingly congested looking fixture list ahead and the teams around them picking up form. How bleak are things for Il Toro right now, Michael? Yeah, pretty bleak. The rescheduled game against Sassuolo is confirmed and the postponed game, cancelled game, we don't know what it is at the moment. It's really up in the air for Torino Lazio now. Um, Torino had a COVID outbreak and you may it might help to draw your minds back to earlier in the season when Napoli had a COVID outbreak prior to a game against Juventus, where Juventus even turned up there on the pitch ready to play in Napoli. Couldn't leave Naples because of the outbreak and because of a local government policy at the time. Now, that game, Juventus were given three points from that game as a forfeit because Lazio didn't turn up, but it later got overruled a couple of months later. But with this one, Serie A have taken the same stance and for now have recently decided to give this as a forfeit and 
have given Lazio a 3-0 win by way of forfeit for Torino's COVID outbreak. Now, the game against the Swallow, because they say they're allowed one postponed game, they will that will be rescheduled. But it does really round off what's been an awful, awful fortnight for Torino. And I think it'll be really interesting to see what happens in the case with Lazio, because the Napoli-Juve one, it took two months for the Italian Olympic Committee to overrule that that in one game should be replayed later in the season. Now, if you take that into account with this one and put that into context, it will be May when the Italian Olympic Committee decide on what will happen in the outcome of the Torino-Lazio game, which could have huge bearings on the relegation race because we don't know where, where those teams will be, but it's likely it could be a really tight relegation race and that may decide it. If it goes against Torino, we, we, we could very well see this one go to UEFA, I think. You know, it's such disappointing timing for them because you may remember us crediting their crucial win over Cagliari in the last episode. Massive win for their new coach, Davide Nicola, who had been unbeaten in his first five games in charge. And upon their return after the two cancellations, postponements, whatever we're going to call them, and Kulu, Bremer and Bellotti, especially Bellotti, all key players for Torino were absent. And from that, they suffered a hugely damaging defeat to Crotone at the bottom of Serie A, who were really benefiting from the new manager. I really, I in fact, tell you to check him out if you can on Google Images or something. The Circe Cosme has got a quite an interesting uh, dress sense. But with that, the relegation picture is looking a lot more bleak for Torino. In the next four games, they've got Inter Milan, Juventus and Sassuolo. And what's even more bleak about it is that during that week where they weren't able to play, Cagliari have responded brilliantly to their new appointments, which we discussed last week. And they've collected seven points from nine to catapult them out of the relegation zone and to dump Il Toro in it. And you'd have thought, even against the top opposition in Sassuolo and Lazio, Torino would relish having those games at the same time to just keep that pressure on Cagliari. But now they find themselves behind and part of the chasing pack. And this could be a really difficult period for Torino. It'd be really interesting to see how they respond. Yeah, indeed. It seems like it's been quite understandably disruptive, that COVID outbreak within the Torino squad. Exactly what the rest of the season will have in store for them remains to be seen. But thanks again for that, Michael. Excellent and insightful analysis. We will take a quick break and turn our attention to Ligan, where there's been a few managerial shakeups. On to Ligan and a few movements is putting it lightly, Ali. In recent weeks, we've seen movements at Marseille and Rennes in the south, as Jorge Sampaoli was hired as a new coach at Marseille following the departure of Andre Vidas Boas last month, while the popular Pablo Longoria replaced the decidedly unpopular. Jacques Henri Ayrou as club president. Ariavarend of the country in the northwest, Julien Stéphane and Rennes parted company after two and a half memorable years together. Former Leo manager Bruno Genesio has been appointed as Stéphane's replacement at Ruazon Park. What have you made of it all, Ali? Yeah, it's been typically wild down in Marseille, to be honest. But remember the quite despicable scenes at Marseille's training complex when the fans broke in and inflicted hundreds of thousands of euros worth of damage. I think the two main targets there were Villas-Boas and Jacques-Henri Elo, the, the club president, as you say. I think Elo was, how shall we say, it's quite a, a controversial character. So I think the fans will be delighted to see that he's gone. They'll be delighted to see Pablo Longoria has now been installed as... Club president, he was obviously sporting director, and I think, um, as far as I'm aware, he's continuing with that role as well as his new role of club president. He's only 34, he's younger than Steph Mondonda, the, the Marseille goalkeeper, which is quite remarkable. And I think he's really going places, an excellent footballing brain, really unassuming, but incredibly intelligent. So I think that's a good appointment. He's done an excellent job at a number of clubs and has done a relatively okay job, I think, at Marseille, it's fair to say some aspects maybe of the recruitment could be questioned. But overall, I think he's very popular with the Marseille fans. So they were delighted to see him appointed. Jorge Sampaoli, I'm going to come to you 
Bow really quickly in a minute, but just in terms of what I think about the appointment, I think it's almost the perfect marriage. You know, quite a combustible manager in charge of quite a combustible club. We obviously did very well with Chile winning the Copa America and did not so well with Argentina. One of the lasting images of the 2018 World Cup was were those images of Sam Pauli going quite wild, quite crazy on the touchline. He's only been a manager once in Europe before, and that was with Sevilla back in 2017, so I'm going to come to you shortly on that. Barvo, I do wonder if there's maybe this hope that he can connect with Marseille on the same level as Marcel Bielsa did when he was in charge at the Velodrome a few years ago now. Obviously, there are perhaps parallels to be drawn there. Bielsa supposedly spoke to San Paoli before he took on the job at the Velodrome. It's pleased the fans for the time being. It's the appointment that they probably wanted. Will he actually bring success? I'm not too sure. What style Barlow will he bring to the Velodrome? He's certainly very much, he's a disciple of Bielsa. He likes playing pressing football. It's high tempo. It's pretty exciting. And in his year at Sevilla, he, they were one of the best teams in the league. They were in a genuine title race until about March. And then in typical Bielsa fashion, some would say they fell off an absolute cliff in the last sort of 10 to 15 games, which really put pay to his sort of spell there. And, Personally, I think he's a good manager. Like you say, he's not going to calm things down at Marseille. He is chaotic. He's like a terrier on the touchline, screaming and shouting and yapping. But overall, I think it's a good management. And I think it's it'll be hit or miss. It'll be really good or not go so well. But I think as an appointment, the way Marseille are and the situation they're in, I think he's as good a bet as any to take them forward. And I think he's, he's one of those managers that, gives a club a real sort of identity and I think Marseille enjoy and revel in that. Yeah, absolutely. The fans will probably adore Simple and if you can give them that sort of identity that you speak of. Marseille, of course, played Rennes on Wednesday night. They won 1-0. I don't think we can take too much from that game. It was a fairly drab encounter. I've not watched it back in full, but from what I have watched and from what I've heard, it was quite a drab encounter. Obviously, that was Sam Pauli's first game in charge of Marseille. And it's Bruno Genesio's first game in charge of Rennes. Genesio's obviously replaced Julien Stéphane, who, despite it petering out quite sadly towards the end at Rennes, he's still probably regarded as one of the best young coaches in France, quite rightly still regarded as one of the best young coaches in, in France. He was appointed at Rennes back in 2018 following Sabri Lamucci's departure. He was appointed by the now-departed club president, Olivier Letang. He's now actually at Lille, coincidentally. But Letang and Stéphane were an excellent duo. They worked really well together. And following a decade of mostly top-half finishes, but mediocrity, Stéphane really brought stability to the club. And he brought good times to the club. They won the Coupe de France in 2019 against PSG, coming back from 2-0 down to winning penalties. He qualified for the Champions League. You could argue by default, given that the season was ended early, but they still qualified for the Champions League. The less said about the Champions League campaign, the better probably, but regardless, he still got there, guided the club to their best ever league finish. And on the whole, he was an excellent manager for Rennes. And I think a lot of the powers that be at Rennes were quite sad to see him go. I spoke about that dream duo of him and Olivier Letton. Ultimately, their relationship deteriorated quite a bit and it reached the point where the, the club had to decide between Letton and Stéphane and they decided to stick with Stéphane. Letton then left and as part of that kind of post-Letton restructuring, they brought in Florian Maurice, who of course had been involved at Lyon with recruitment there, but it felt increasingly marginalised by Juninho and Gerard Hulli, who'd been an advisor of sorts to Jean-Michel Olas there. So Maurice left, very talented, very highly rated, Florian Maurice, and, and he came in to Rennes and people were thinking, oh, great, Stefan and Maurice, that's going to be an excellent uh, an excellent partnership there in terms of sporting director and coach. But the recruitment over the summer, just sim- quite simply, probably wasn't good enough. I think the players that they brought in, Martin Terry, for example, they haven't really impressed too much. Jeremy Doku was brought in just after they let Rafinha go, quite bizarrely. And I think Jeremy Doku probably will come good, but Rafinha was a player who was much further along in his development. A player who supposedly didn't particularly want to leave Glenn. And when he was told he was going, he said, OK, but I don't think he had any real desire to leave Glenn. And we've seen how good he's been for Leeds 
So I think maybe still work to do for Florian Maurice in terms of his role there with the recruitment at Rennes. I do wonder as well how Bruno Genesio will get on. They've gone from Julian Stefan, exciting young coach, to Bruno Genesio, who's a little bit older, who's capable of really producing excellent results in the big games, but against lower opposition, against opposition of inferior quality, they would perhaps be more stubborn. At Lyon, they did struggle to break them down. We would see when they beat Manchester City and then very close in time to that game, they then struggled to break down Vance. So I do wonder how Genesio will get on. He's quite different to Stefan, and I don't think the supporters at Rennes will afford Genesio as much time as he perhaps might be willing to have afforded Stefan, who, let's not forget, walked from Rennes on his own accord. SC Lund are back in the top flight of French football after depressing five-season hiatus, playing with pace and irresistible verticality at the iconic Stade Bolaire de la Lise. Frank Hayes' vibrant side have exceeded expectations on their return to Ligue 1 and currently sit in fifth place. A fifth-place finish come the end of the season would, of course, be enough to land them a European spot. For a team that featured regularly in the old UEFA Cup at the turn of the century, a return to European competition would really be quite poignant, wouldn't it? Yeah, Michael, it would. Lons are a team who I've not watched an awful lot of this season until I was doing my research for the podcast. I hadn't caught too much of them. I'd caught a few games and I'd read a lot about them. But what I will say is, having done more research into them, having watched more of their play, they really are an exciting team to watch. Frank Eze was brought in towards the tail end of last season with the side setting second and he's done an excellent job. doesn't have any superstars in his team, but he has really created a system that, that gets the most out of the players at his disposal. Excellent fans, as you see, an iconic stadium. Uh, last decade, they've largely been in League 2. They play a 3-4-1-2 with an aggressive pressing system. The holding too, quite often, we'll see Seko Fofana, who of course came in from Udinese over the summer, despite interest from some really big clubs across Europe. Uh, and there's also Czech Decury, who quite often plays in that holding too as well. We see a lot of rotation. Frank Eze loves rotation, almost as much as Claudio Ranieri loves rotation. There always seems to be a different start in 11, which makes it more interesting for the neutral to watch. The back three, Roy Bade, Facundo Medina and Jonathan Gradit, quite an exciting Back three as well, all have their own individual strengths and all on their own would be exciting individual case studies. Really try to use the width of the pitch with the full-backs. Quite often we'll see Masadio Haidara as a left wing-back, Jonathan Klaus as a right wing-back. They're so important to be able to play. They'll look quite often to spread the ball wide and then to play diagonal balls across to the other side of the pitch, which works quite well for them. <laughs> They're sitting fifth in the table. So I'm really impressed with Lons so far this season. But they obviously... As you see, have that rich European history at the turn of the century. UEFA Cup semi-finalists back in 2000 against Arsenal. They won Ligue 1 in 97-98 season. They won the Coupe de la Ligue in 1998-1999. So perhaps they're dreaming of a return to, to those glory days. Maybe not winning Ligue 1. Maybe not winning well, the Campman Coupe de la Ligue because it's no longer a competition. But perhaps maybe Cup glory isn't out with their ambitions. And absolutely, they're in a good spot now to go on and qualify for Europe. They're really exciting to watch, very pacey going forwards, play with an impressive verticality, as you say, Michael. And also the exciting young players. I've mentioned a few of them already. We've got Ignatius Ganago, he's 22, came in in the summer. We've got Czech Takuri, the holding midfielder, 21. Loic Badi, one of the centre-halves, so composed on the ball. Offers a contrast to the more aggressive Jonathan Gradit. And they've also got Facunda Medina, the, the Argentine 21-year-old. So much going for them there. And when you think about it, Lons have historically had a good youth academy. Uh, Rafa Varane, Jeffrey Kondogbia, Thorgan Azar, Sejauri, they all came through the youth academy. It's called Le Gaillet. It's a lump of coal that translates to, and that takes its name from the, the mining tradition in the area. It was a huge mining area, the last in the mine shot in the 80s. But I think, again, we see, as we see with Schalke, that connection between club and community. We do see that connection between club and community at Lons. Great team. It's a team that I have a real soft spot for, and actually... One of the most hungover games I've been at was Strasbourg against Lons back in December 2016. Strasbourg won 3-1 that day as they raced to the league to title, but the, the Lons fans that day were fantastic. They created an excellent atmosphere and I'm delighted to be seeing Lons. 
to be seeing Frank Ayes, to be seeing their young players, Ganago, Takuri, Paddy, Adina. I'm delighted to be seeing them all doing so well. Guys, I think we'll wrap it up there. This episode is absolutely going to be over the hour mark. We always try to keep it under the hour mark, but we've strayed over quite considerably. Hopefully you, the listener, have enjoyed it. Hopefully you've found the content enlightening and engaging. Stay safe, stay well. Good night.